0: Engine running. <laughs> Absolute
1: genius. Get this. Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> this is the show where we bring you science. What that essentially means is... Discovery. Is advances. questions, Research. Technology. Unbelievable. Without
2: further ado, this is The Naked Scientist. Hello, welcome to The Naked Scientist, the programme that brings you the latest breakthroughs in science, technology and medicine. And this week we're drilling down into the fracking debacle. Party politics get pushed aside so the science can take centre stage. What is fracking? Will it help or hinder our energy headache? And at what environmental cost? The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk
1: Welcome to this week's special feature on fracking with me, James Titko and Chris Smith. As mentioned, we're going to try and get to the bottom of one of the most divisive topics dominating the discourse here in the UK and abroad at the moment.
3: promised on entering Downing Street to act. Let's get them removed.
2: No, not Prime Minister Liz Truss per se, but the cause being championed by the people she was interrupted by at the Conservative Party conference. They were fracking activists. Hydraulic fracturing, or fracking, is an industrial process that's undertaken to access pockets of gas locked inside rock formations underground. There's reputedly a very large reserve of this fossil fuel resource that can be recovered this way, so it's seen by its proponents as a vital part of the solution to the energy crisis currently rampaging across the world, particularly as ongoing tensions with Russia mean gas supply security looks very uncertain and definitely remains very expensive.
1: Critics, on the other hand, say that lifting the fracking ban is a case of robbing Peter to pay Paul. While it might defer energy concerns, although to what extent is also up for debate, it is in direct conflict with another significant and pressing issue, climate change. It may also have onward environmental impacts, including groundwater contamination and seismic activity, in other words, earthquakes. This led to some heated exchanges in the House of Commons
2: recently between the Energy Secretary and his shadow counterpart.
0: I'm glad to be able to announce that the moratorium on extraction of shale gas is being lifted. It is important that we use all available sources of fuel within this country. It is more environmentally friendly to use our own sources of fuel rather than to extract them from other countries and transport them here at great cost, both financially and in terms of carbon and we need to revisit the seismic limits to ensure that shale gas extraction can be done in an effective and efficient way. They are lifting the ban, but they can't supply the evidence. And the British Geological Survey published today certainly doesn't do it. So, in the absence of the evidence, his approach is to change the safety limits. You can't escape a fossil fuels crisis by doubling down on fossil fuels. We know that shale gas is safe. It's safe in the United States... and has been one of the biggest contributors contributors to the decline in carbon emissions in the United States of any activity that has gone on in that country. We know that seismic activity of 2.5 and below on the Richter scale takes place millions of times a year across the world. Bringing on this supply will bring us cheaper energy which we need.
2: Jacob Rees-Mogg and Ed Miliband. So today we're going to remove the party politics from the equation and we're going to see what the science has to say. I suppose you could say we're sorting fracked from fiction. And if we end up with earthquakes, then friction too.
1: Before the show this week, we asked our Twitter followers what their gut reaction was to whether fracking had their support. 68% said no, 20% said yes, and 12% were unsure. It will be interesting to see if by the end of today's show anyone might have changed their mind. Well, to kick us off, I'd like to introduce Andy
2: Woods, who is a scientist who studies how fluids behave at the University of Cambridge. He's therefore just the man to explain to us how fracking works and what it entails. Welcome to the programme, Andy. What actually is shale gas? Is it the same stuff that we would get from under the North Sea, to all intents and purposes?
4: Uh, Yeah, so shale gas is um, essentially a large part of it's going to be methane, but it's different from the gas that comes from some of the other reservoirs because it's trapped in shale. And shale is very fine-grained sedimentary material with grains of size of about 10 microns. And the, the very small pores between those grains is where the, the shale gas is hosted. And then there's also some gas adsorbed on the surfaces. And so there's organic matter inside those shale deposits, which ultimately um, is the origin of, of that gas. But because these rocks are so fine-grained, the, the gas can actually be trapped inside the rock and doesn't flow um, in normal situations. It'll have extremely slow flow rates.
2: The reason that we we don't have to frack under the North Sea, for example, presumably the geology there means you've got big pockets of gas all in communication, whereas when it's in these tiny pores in the rocks, you, you need to, to smash the rocks up a bit in order to make those little pockets of gas join
4: up to make big ones. So, so I think fracking as a process is... Occurs in lots of different situations, but with the shale, you know, the gas is essentially locked into those small pores in the shale. And so, what what you do is you drill a well down to the shale formation, and um, and then pump up um, a mixture of water and sand and some chemicals, and um, seal off the rest of the well so that, that that mixture can actually open up fractures in that shale, and um, the, the the water carries the small sand particles with it, and they end up propping open these fractures so that you've, you've essentially opened up and provided a flow path from the rock back into the, um, into the well to allow that gas to, to flow. How deep underground are we talking? I, well, this, this will vary depending on the, the formation, um, but we're, we're looking at, um, of order, one, two kilometres below the surface.
2: And how do scientists know it's there?
4: Um, if you look at the shale deposits if you have, if you look at the geologic history of the, the different basins and, and different deposits there's hints from that that there will be gas present in different deposits but if you actually produce a sample of the shale and find organic matter in it um, and that's been through an appropriate process of being buried in the earth and coming back up again, you'd expect that to have um, some of that to have um, produced uh, gas.
2: And I follow what you say about the fact that you, you, you break open the rocks and then prop open the gaps with the sand yep. grains. How far can that effect go then? I mean, how far can you reach with one particular shaft, one drill shaft?
4: So you may actually drill a well vertically down and then it may run horizontally through the formation and then you'd prop open different parts of that selectively, increasing the pressure of the hydraulic fluid. And So essentially you're providing surface area for the gas near that surface area to flow into the well.
2: So does this mean then to get an appreciable amount of gas out you've got to drill lots of holes or can we actually recover a reasonable amount of gas from just one drill site and then you just keep it open for a while?
4: So so the actual the gas that will flow into the the, the fractures that you're creating that are connected to the well is only going to come from the uh, a very small distance away from that fracture maybe of order a few centimetres typically. Um, the thing
2: that People are concerned about really there are two aspects aren't there there's the what happens to the ground does it destabilize it does it cause earthquakes that's what jacob rees mogg was was saying we should uh, we should get used to a few more earthquakes um and also whether or not the chemicals that go down the, the the mud and the water and so on whether they go down and stay down or whether they go elsewhere so what do, what do we know first of all about the earthquake side of things
4: so, so so we do know there's earthquakes that can happen. Being able to predict exactly how many earthquakes and the, the distribution of earthquakes is much more challenging because it depends on having a detailed understanding of the fault distribution, the the stress state of the rocks um, where, where you're injecting the fluids. And, uh, uh,
2: and the, the question of what goes down, does it stay down or do those liquids move?
4: So the liquids are t- typically you try and recover some of those liquids because if you've, op- if you've opened up this flow path... To actually allow the gas to flow back out up the well, if you if that fracture when you have when you produce it, it's full of the water you've injected with the the sand and the chemicals, and that's obviously going to provide some resistance to having gas coming back out through that flow path. So normally you try and um, back produce some of that and bring it back to the surface, and then dispose of that that water. Um, Uh, but some of the water may, um, because of effects of surface tension and and a a process called imbibition, some of that water may flow into other parts of the formation or may be absorbed into some of the clay materials. We'll
2: look more at these environmental questions uh, as we go on with the programme. But Andy, thank you very much for for giving us uh, an introduction to it. That's Andy Woods. He is from the University of Cambridge. It's The Naked Scientist with me, Chris Smith, and also with James Ticko. We're looking at the science of fracking. Now, this is a process and a procedure that's been blocked for many years on environmental grounds in some places, but now it's very much back on the agenda and back on the table in a number of countries because of what's going on with the energy and the cost of living crisis with which
1: the world is grappling. So, having familiarised ourselves with the process itself, let's switch our focus to some of the economic arguments for and against shale gas extraction. Cambridge-based Michael Grubb is a professor of energy and climate change at University College London. Thanks for coming in, Michael. We're talking about this because the moratorium on fracking has been lifted. Can you tell us a bit about why fracking was banned in the first place?
5: Yes, I think um, it's useful to to, to look back and recognise that there was a huge wave of enthusiasm about fracking, uh, at least in the the industry, about a decade ago. um, There'd been Pretty much a technology revolution in the US, and there was lots of hype about Europe was going to get on on the act. Actually, most of that ended in disappointment across much of Europe, including the UK. There there were some pockets of potential fracking, uh, but most of the industry concluded it wasn't going to be very much, it wouldn't be very cheap, and it really wasn't worth the risk. So I think the general environment was actually this is not remotely what it was hyped up to be and there were problems and risks and political opposition and, and the government simply decided it, it would be simpler to ban it.
1: So just to clarify, you've mentioned how it's, particularly in the United States fracking's enjoyed some success. The main reasons that we couldn't replicate that success in the UK, that's to do with us not knowing exactly how much shale gas is under the surface of, of the UK. The U.S. has a vast land
5: surface compared with the U.K., and a lot of it is is much less population, that's one thing there's still very much the u s industry is concentrated on some particularly good resources. Uh, nothing in the geological mapping suggested we had anything that was going to be that good, big, cheap, uh, or easy to access and and land in Europe as a whole uh, tends to be a lot more expensive than, than in the uh, the u s One final factor is the legal regime was different, so people who had land. Uh, In the US, they owned the gas underneath. It gave them a strong incentive
1: to put up with disruption if they got the money. And that's not generally the situation here. So I suppose what's different now? Could the lifting of the moratorium, this is the big question, alleviate the surge in energy prices being felt here in the UK at the moment?
5: Well, um, I mean, I think there's four challenges, frankly, that that shale is going to face there's time scale there's cost there's markets and there's there's risks the time scale is determined partly you have to drill dozens of holes to really know what's there in detail and, and to establish what what you can actually inject how much it's going to take etc etc then the cost of getting at it obviously it is a lot easier to drill a hole down into a pure reservoir of gas and it comes up in a pipe than it is to go through the processes uh, that's just been uh, described. That that's probably makes it more expensive than you know normal gas resources, but it could still be economic at these gas prices, for sure. But bear in mind the timescale implied in there is it's going to take several years to get substantial supplies. The third thing is markets, because these are global industries... Would we be saying to companies, "Sure, go ahead and frack and sell it on the international markets"? Well, the volume that we would sell would make virtually no difference to the global price, or therefore to our price, unless we actually kind of forced companies to sell it to Britain first at a less economic, less attractive price. Uh, and then finally, there are the the environmental risks, and whether something goes wrong, is a that that basically does create a bit of a backlash. Uh, and so uh, I'm not sure the industry is that keen to jump in here. For the most part, some companies, a few specialist companies are, that have put all their eggs in that basket.
1: So it looks like the odds are fairly really heavily stacked against fracking. I just wonder if something like, for example, today, we, well, the, the objective of this programme has to been to sort of remove the politics from this quite contentious topic. But the reason we're having this discussion is because, Politically, it's 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 very topical, and I wonder if something like um, the National Grid coming out today and saying that winter power cuts might be a, a worst case scenario in the coming months, whether that might mean that the government sees fit and and it it gives the companies the the assurances to make them start doing. Do you see that as a possibility that the politics has a role over the economics?
5: Well, I think for whatever reasons, clearly the government is signalling that it's in favour of fracking. It wants it to start up again. Uh, It's pushing it quite hard. There's obviously an instinctive appeal about trying to extract your own energy resources. I mean, it it will have consequences uh, internationally as, as well and, you know, implications. I think it's actually, I must admit, a little ironic hearing the news in the last couple of days about lights might go out because of this. Um, I I actually, for three years, chaired the Government Committee on Electricity Security, um, called the Expert Committee on uh, EMR, and uh, raised this question about we're assuming that because we've got enough gas plants, therefore our electricity will be secure – uh, isn't that an assumption we should look at? And I was pretty robustly told, no, this is an electricity committee. Uh, we've got enough diversity in gas. Uh, you needn't worry about gas supply. So, Michael, stay like in the box of electricity. But, you know, energy markets have always had a capacity to bring us shocks.
1: And that's where we'll have to leave it. Thank you very much, Michael Grubb, University College, London.
2: Thought-provoking stuff. Well, we are this week talking about fracking and we've tried to leave the the partisan proponents for and against shale gas in their respective party conferences and we're getting the scientists to do the talking away from all the squabbling. With us now is Jasmine Cooper. Jasmine's a research associate at the Sustainable Gas Institute at Imperial College and is going to shed a bit more light on some of the environmental but also the social consequences of fracking. Jasmine, first of all, we, we haven't considered yet the the question of when we burn this gas, does it amount to the same outcome, which is it's still a climate change gas? Will it still lead to greenhouse gas emission changes in the atmosphere, whether it comes out of fracking or comes out of the North Sea from our existing gas fields?
3: Absolutely. As Andy said, Shell gas is exactly the same as the natural gas we get from the North Sea. So when you burn it, you will get CO2 emitted. You also get methane emissions from the different stages of producing it as well.
2: And, and when we go through the process, as Michael just said, we've got to drill a lot of holes. Andy said, and he said, you then shove stuff down under pressure into the ground in order to prop those holes small holes open there's a lot of stuff going in there's a lot of environmental impact there that is very visible it's on land it's near people's homes let's sort of drill down excuse the pun into each of those elements in turn the the environmental contamination in terms of what we put into the ground tell us about that how much of a risk is that judged to be
3: well it depends a lot on whether or not you'll get any seepage from the hydraulic fracturing into any like local aquifers or any water bodies we've had such little drilling activity it'd be really difficult to actually try to put a number on whether or not there'll be any risk to water contamination Uh,
2: experiences in other countries america
3: there is some experience of maybe some migration of chemicals that was used in the fracturing fluid as well as some migration of methane into some um, local water bodies as well so potentially yes but it really depends on whether or not you have any water bodies near where you're drilling so it goes down to a lot of like surveying your area really well.
2: One of our listeners got in touch and and said well how does this all get policed in terms of is it self-reporting or is there a regulator is there an oversight body and what sort of mechanism is in place to, to keep tabs on this and also to predict in the way you're saying that this might or might not happen?
3: Well, in the UK, it's quite different to the US because things are regulated quite differently there. A lot of it's on the federal scales. In the UK, there's a lot more regulations and regulatory bodies. So big organisations like the Oil and Gas Authority, BAYS, Environment Agency, so they'd be able to uh, regulate and police these different environmental aspects.
2: But you're saying that because we've done not very much of it, we have not very much experience of it, which makes it a bit chicken and egg. Do we have to do it, find out what can go wrong to to work out what to police or or, or is there already a framework for if we do go down this path this is how we're going to keep tabs on it
3: Um, unfortunately yes because each shale gas well in each area that you do drill in it'll be very different to one another so you can't it's not like an ikea set where you can just like follow the instructions (laughs) so unfortunately you will have to learn as you go along you can like, look at the US because they do have the massive scale of shale gas exploration there. So you can look at to see if there's any lessons you can learn from them and what to do and what to not do.
2: OK. And, and in terms of that, that pollution argument, how significant do we judge that to be? Because that is something that people are extremely vocal about with groundwater contamination, spread of, of what gets put down into the wells and so on. How much of a threat do we regard that as?
3: Um, based on what's happened in the US, it, it's not necessarily contamination from the hydraulic fracturing and then migrations. That would be the biggest threat. It would be more of the flow back fluid that's produced. So, so when, what,
2: what you put down the well coming back out the what well? What
3: you come back up, what comes back up, yeah. Because in addition to the chemicals that's in the fracturing fluid, you also get any chemicals and minerals that's within the rock that would have dissolved. That you wash out. Like, yeah, you out? Yeah, well, that's was washed out and comes back up.
2: And what can happen to it?
3: In the UK, it was proposed that any flowback fluid that was produced, that it would be sent to wastewater treatment plants to get treated. But there are some issues because quite a few of the chemicals that get used in the fracturing fluid, so lots of, like, surfactants that are used to control the viscosity, but also chemicals that are that can come up from the rock. There's some, like, radioactive materials, they can also come up. They're not things wastewater treatment plants are yeah. designed to treat. <laughs> not normally, so, no. No, just, like... <laughs> concerns about how they're going to handle that.
2: But what sort of volumes are we talking about? Just briefly, I mean, what what amount of material might the wastewater... Comprise? Are we talking thousands of gallons, millions of gallons, litres, you know, how many?
3: Uh, well, it depends on the scale, but you're looking at hundreds of thousands of cubic metres of so water. Huge. It's huge. This it's is a, a significant it's issue. A lot, yeah. oh,
2: fair enough. Let's consider then the, the sort of social aspects, because we've, we've looked at the sort of geological and the environmental and, and why people therefore might object to them. What about the the whole social thing? How, how receptive are people really to this? Are, are people saying, yeah, okay, I can see there's an energy crisis, we need to do our bit, it's fine, or are people saying absolutely not over my dead body?
3: I think it's an interesting time um, because obviously we are in a bit of an energy crisis so that might shift people more towards being more accepting of it. But from an environmental side and also from a community side, if you live some near a site where the going to drill. You may not like the idea of earthquakes that you didn't sign up for when you first moved to where you live and also the increase in traffic and just the general industrialization of what are normally uh, quite rural communities.
2: Mm. The Prime Minister was talking to BBC Radio Lancashire recently. They were pressing her on the question of, of this whole issue of what they are dubbing local consent. Have a listen to this. Let's talk about local consent right now what does local consent look like prime minister
3: well I, the 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 energy secretary will be laying out uh in more detail exactly what that looks like but it does mi- mean making sure there is local support for for going ahead and it, i can it, assure it sounds you, like you don't I can know assure...
2: what is local consent jasmine <laughs>
3: So local consent would be having the support and backing of the local communities so that they are on board with the development of shale gas activity in their area and are actively in favour of the development and there's no local opposition uh, from both the local community but also the local authorities.
2: Because I think other members of the Conservative Party have said, well, people who live near, say, the new nuclear power station that's been endorsed on the southeast coast in England... Uh, should get free electricity so is is this is this a sweetener are we saying okay people can get free gas if you live near a fracking site I mean where's this going to end
3: I'm not entirely sure because it depends on where you're drilling the gas and how what the gas infrastructure is like so potentially they could get like highly subsidized gas if that's something the operator wants to do but at the same time I think it's quite tricky to try to like incentivised communities by saying, oh, we'll give you free energy, because to a certain extent that's a bit like trying to bribe them.
2: Yeah, it sounds like coercion, yeah, almost, it does. doesn't it? I mean, are you comfortable with the question of, of fracking? And if if you were living in this area, would you say, look, uh, I'm knowing what I know, I'm an expert in this area, I'm quite comfortable with it going ahead, please do. Or, or would you actually object?
3: From a scientific perspective, I find it really interesting. But if I had to live near a site where they are going to drill shell gas I might be a bit anxious.
2: Nuclear power station?
3: Less anxious.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Less anxious. <That's>, it's interesting <laughs> that is it? because a lot of people say they would much rather live near a coal-fired power station than a nuclear power station but wait for wait what the, the coal-fired station chucks up the chimney is more radioactive yeah, exactly. than because of what's coming out of the ground or being burned by the thousands of tonne load. Jasmine, thanks very much. That's Jasmine Cooper. She's from Imperial College. That's where we have to leave it for this week. We have to say thank you very much to our guests, who were Andy Woods, Michael Grubb and Jasmine Cooper, who helped us to wade through the fracking controversy. Hopefully we've cleared up one or two things for you at home. Next time on the programme, we're looking at long Covid. What have we now learned about this phenomenon that affects up to one in five people who catch the new coronavirus? If you'd like to share your experiences, do tell. It's chris at com. The Naked Scientist comes to you from the University of Cambridge's Institute of Continuing Education. It's supported by Rolls-Royce. I'm Chris Smith. Thank you for listening and until next time, goodbye.